this morning we start up another mini-series installment that we call Grace Stories. Grace Stories, uh, we've had the privilege of hearing over 30 of them over the last five years. These are real-life, on-the-ground, authentic stories from the lives of people sitting right next to you, scattered throughout the sanctuary in both services. And our commitment to digging for these grace stories, encouraging people to consider sharing, our, our commitment stems from our desire to continue to cultivate this gospel culture here at Grace Redeemer Church, a safe place in which uh, uh, to say in various forms, I am weak, but he is strong. A place where we can ask honest questions about God, say, I'm not sure, doubt, spiritually or emotionally limp, cry out in pain, and we pray, find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, um, this month, I should say, three more members of GRC are ready to share their grace story. And it just so happens, we truly did not plan this, that all three stories are coming from members of our GRC um, office staff. Uh, Two of them grew up in Christian homes, but that doesn't protect anyone from the brokenness of life. The other uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home, but grew up going to church, but that doesn't make anyone a follower of Jesus. Each of these stories gives us a window into how God is at work renewing and restoring and resurrecting. This morning, Carl Stevens is ready to share his story. He's our new director of worship ministries, and uh, I would encourage you to encourage him when you get the chance, maybe after the service, to express your appreciation for the fact that the first time that Carl is stepping onto the stage, at least in a formal capacity, is not to play the guitar, it's not to lead worship, but is to transparently and humbly share with you, as he has walked with Christ, that there have been plenty of times of pain, but more importantly, that there have been sufficient times when gospel grace has been poured out on his life. Thanks, brother. Good morning. I was born into a Christian home, the home of a pastor. God opened my eyes to my need for him and brought me to faith at a very early age. I grew up in the church. We were there every time the doors were open. Sure, there were challenges, but hey, I was living the Christian life. I was serving God I read my Bible, prayed to God, attended church, and I guess I thought as long as I did those things, I could ensure that my life would go pretty well. You know, I figured if you just keep the rules, God will be pleased and make everything warm and fuzzy in your life. If I would just serve him the best I could, then he would reward me with my best life now. I entered college with a desire to spend my life serving God in local church ministry, primarily in the area of music. I met a great Christian girl with similar desires and talents. We finished school, got married, and we were headed off to make God proud. He now had a great team working on his side. He must have been thrilled. Ministry life was good. God opened up many opportunities for us to serve him. And to serve his people. Family life was good. We began our family. And eventually God blessed us with three adorable little girls. We thought this is what life was all about. 
living the Christian American dream. But God had some deeply important things to show us. And as he often does, he used the series of very difficult circumstances in our lives to change us, to break us, to show us that he alone can meet our deepest needs. Life began to get hard when my mother contracted cancer and passed away at a relatively young age. Not long after that, my wife entered a very intense emotional and spiritual struggle with doubting whether or not she was truly saved. Serious doubts plagued her daily and sometimes every minute about whether or not her faith was actually good enough in order for God to save her. We talked a lot, prayed a lot, cried a lot, searched the Bible, sought out counsel and more. And as we were working through this, we got a phone call on a Monday evening. The day after Easter Sunday in 2003, informing us that my father, who was also my pastor, who was engaged to be married to a great lady that he had met a year or so after my mother had passed, my father, who had just preached two sermons on Easter and sang a solo, he could have called 10,000 angels, had returned home alone that Sunday and proceeded to carry out his long, laid-out plan for that evening to take his own life. I was in shock. Questions flooded my mind. Most of them began with, why? Why, Dad? Why, God? Why me? Then came the what-ifs. What if I could have just done something to prevent this? What if I had been there? What if someone else could have just happened on him that night? God, couldn't you have made something like that happen? Then why didn't you? In circumstances like this, questions flood your mind like a tidal wave crashing on shore. A few of these questions were answered a couple days later when we received through postal mail my father's letter. There was his reason. And while this answered a very, very small question, there would be no reason great enough or hard enough to warrant this choice and the effect it would have on his family and others. We were devastated. But God. God was there. God had not forsaken me. God had not forsaken my father. God had not left me on my own to wade through these waters. I clearly sensed the mercies of God embracing me as I ran to him and fell on my knees, begging him for answers begging him for help. There were certainly the thoughtful words and cares of well-wishers and the timely direction and grace ministered to us through wise and compassionate pastors and teachers. But God was doing something very big here, something good. He was graciously using these intense struggles to uniquely prepare and strengthen me for what would be one of the most radical paradigm shifts in my life. You see, through this time, God had been putting his words into my mind and my heart. Through the reading, the seeking, and studying of Scripture, along with a godly teacher by the name of Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, God had been opening me up to three life-changing, hope-instilling pillars of truth that would change the way I viewed God and every circumstance of life 
for the rest of my life. These truths began with that God is in absolute control of all things at all times, from the smallest to the greatest, to unfold exactly as He intends. Second, God is perfectly loving, always working all things for my good. And finally, God is infinitely wise, always using the best means to accomplish, always using the best means to accomplish His best purpose in my life. God also showed me that these truths never act in independence of each other. Otherwise, they would be scary truths. If God is absolutely in control of all things, but not perfectly loving or infinitely wise, then theoretically He could cause something to happen in my life that would not be for my good or not be the best way to accomplish His purpose in my life. If God is perfectly loving and infinitely wise, but not absolutely in control, then He may want to show me His love and know the best way to do it, but not be able to cause those circumstances to work out that way. Something could slip through the cracks and mess it all up. But God is all of these things all the time. And He tells us in Ephesians that He works everything according to the counsel of His will. And in Romans, that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God used these trials in my life to ignite powerful truths into my heart in a way that would not happen, have happened without them. They became anchors of my soul and hope through the challenges of life, a hope that shines through the darkest of times where everything I see and feel inside screams with bewildering intensity that this cannot be good, but yet assures me that God, in ways that I could not possibly comprehend, is powerfully and perfectly using this struggle and every struggle in my life for my good and for His glory. My heart often echoes the words of the writer of the book of Lamentations. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God further showed me that my feeble attempts at living a good Christian life do not keep me from experiencing difficulties in my life. Rather, that God strategically inserts adversity in my life to make me more like his son, Jesus Christ. And throughout the adversity, he graciously carries me through, whispering the words of the prophet Isaiah, Do not fear. For I am with you. Do not be discouraged. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Adversities continue. And right now, many of the current trials can seem insurmountable. The truths of God's absolute control, His perfect love and infinite wisdom continue to be my rock. 
These truths don't necessarily make the difficulties easier or less stressful, but they do give me hope. When the struggles of this life weigh upon my soul, God assures me that since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up to die for me, effectually meeting my greatest need, that he will graciously continue to sustain me and provide for all my needs. When I feel alone or abandoned in my pain, God reminds me that Jesus is not dead. He is alive, and so he is with me right now, and he will never leave me. He is for me, and if God is for me, who can be against me? What can separate me from God's love through Christ? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not a single ounce of the pain is wasted. It is all working exactly as my gracious God has planned for my good and for his glory. God is good in everything in every way, all the time. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Lord, as your spirit continues to work in and through Carl's life, multiply the harvest of gospel fruit, we pray. Cause it to bring change even in this hour, in this space. And bring beauty from ashes and strength from fear. Bring gladness from mourning. Bring peace from despair. We trust you, Lord, to do all this and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I first read Carl's story in draft form, obviously what got my attention first was his description of one gut punch after another his mom contracting cancer and dying dying too early, his wife Ginny enduring the dark night of the soul, questioning her salvation, and then his father committing suicide, his pastor father. But what really got my attention was this series of statements that immediately followed. Carl said, and we heard this, but God was there. God had not forsaken me. God had not forsaken my father. That got my attention even more than the three gut punches. Because if we're brutally honest, isn't there at least a part of us that wants to say in response to hearing that kind of speech, but what? God was where? God had not forsaken your mom? as her body was losing the cancer? God had not forsaken your wife as she was in the darkness, struggling. Could he not have revealed himself? God was where when your father was carrying out his plan, not sending someone to intervene, God, failing to inject the life-saving drug of hope into this man's heart? How can Carl say that God had not forsaken his father. That's real stuff right there. And I I need to pause right here and share a word about suicide. I ran this by Carl um, Friday or or, or last night. 
Despite the tragedy, Carl has firm confidence that his father is in Christ. That his father trusts Jesus for his salvation, that he is forgiven because he believes that Jesus went to the cross in his place. In other circumstances, and some of you may have those in your lives, we don't know. We don't know the nature of faith or the lack thereof. And a person might not have that hope of salvation despite external appearances, despite church words, despite a pattern of religiosity. We don't know in other instances. In this case, we do know through Carl's confidence, through his life up until that point with his father. We do know that a believer in the valley of a shadow of death didn't make it out the other side. And in a season of weakness, he sinned grievously. No question about it. But suicide is no automatic disqualifier of salvation. Just like murder and adultery did not automatically disqualify King David, who was humble and repentant. And just like even betraying the Savior was not an automatic disqualifier of a humble and transformed Apostle Peter. Back to the question of how Carl could say, God had not forsaken me. We wonder, turning on the news, how can flooded out victims of Harvey say, God had not forsaken me when they come home and there's nothing left? How residents of the Caribbean islands and Cuba and now Florida will, when Irma is history, wonder the same, insist on the goodness of God in the face of losing everything. How? All Carl has done is to affirm what has been a cry of faith for thousands of years. Psalm 46 being a great example. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Right there. God had not forsaken. Ever-present. He didn't abandon. He didn't forget. He didn't fail. Even in the midst of trouble. What kind of trouble? Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, as it did in Mexico this past week, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Carl isn't saying anything that hasn't been wrestled with and anguished over and sung about for thousands of years. Here's another example from Horatio Spafford's pen. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It sounds so strikingly very much like the Apostle Paul who wrote, not up here for you, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether my home is there when I go home or whether it is swept away in a debris field. Whatever my lot, if life is going well with peace, or if life is not going so well and sorrows are hitting me like wave after wave, like sea billows rolling in the angry open ocean, whatever my lot, God, you've taught me to say it is well. How? 
The simple answer, difficult to grasp, difficult to remain in, difficult to apply to all kinds of agonizing issues of turmoil. The simple answer, straight from Scripture, is this. God has not changed. His promises still have not failed, nor will they. The game isn't over. Why do I use that analogy? Um, Years ago, somebody gave us this game called No Stress Chess. And it's a little board game. It, It teaches kids how to play chess because before you can figure out strategy... In a complex game, you need to learn that a knight moves like this and a bishop moves like that. And with each of our kids, we we use these cards and they look at the picture and they figure out what moves to make. And and it's just chaos because you just move wherever the cards tell you to go until we start playing without the cards. And each of my kids had a very similar reaction the first time we just went at it. I moved my piece. I took their piece. And each of them said, what just happened? You know, what's wrong with this picture? Somebody took my piece. Why? Because they didn't quite grasp that inherent to the game of chess is um, trading pieces and sacrificing pieces for the advantage of a position on the board. You might even give up your most valuable moving piece, the queen, in order to set up a win because the purpose of the game is not to be left with the most number of pieces at the end of the day. The purpose of the game is to capture the other person's king, and it doesn't matter how many pieces you have left. What's the point of our lives if that's the point of a game? Not to keep all the pieces we can as if each piece has inherent value in and of themselves, as if those are our trophies for eternity. No, ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, in the lives of Adam and Eve, and, Adam and, Eve, and we have been adding our own sin generation after generation. Ever since then, God's singular purpose in history has been his plan of rescuing his people that came to fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in order to do what? In order to free us from sin and death, in order to restore us to glory in his very presence in which we will enjoy all things most valuable and longest lasting. That's what God is at work doing. That's the ultimate goal. That's the end game. And between here and there, if you are called to forsake all things, and no Carl has not been asked to pay that kind of price, to forsake all things, but if You were called to forsake all things in order to obtain that which is greatest treasure. There's no loss. Jesus himself tells the parables in Matthew chapter 13 of the hidden treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. The guy who obtains each loses nothing. He uh, gives up that which he could not keep to gain that which he could not lose. To borrow Jim Elliott's phrase. So if you're, here's another analogy. If you're a business selling stuff, a simple measure of success is profit, right? At least one measure is profit. But uh, for its first 16 years, the behemoth Amazon Inc. did not turn an annual profit. 
for 16 years because it plowed every bit of revenue back into the business. It was willing to suffer loss, we could say, in order to increase the chances of gaining greater treasure. And so uh, Jeff Bezos' uh, genius for all of this time was a part, uh, behind this drive to not just be a, 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 um, an online bookstore for Americans, but to become a new economy, dominant internet everything to the world. And today, they are turning a profit. And uh, Amazon stores a lot of our cloud data, whether we know it or not, and hosts a lot of the websites we visit while selling us diapers and power tools with two-day shipping. It's amazing. But how, how did it accomplish it? It gave up the short term in order for the long term. It suffered loss willingly in order to gain greater treasure. If God's goodness is measured by what he is doing in the here and now, how he's delivering in this moment, and if it's never okay for the scoreboard of your life to indicate at least a temporary loss, then you're losing sight of the end game. Or you don't yet know what the greatest purpose of your life is. And naturally, you might blame God for any loss, any pain, any suffering, any, anything that seems like a sacrifice less than what you want for your life. Can I ask you to consider with me, what kind of loss do you blame God for? What kind of pain and, and suffering and turmoil creates distance between you and God? and causes you to not come to him in faith, or in your faith causes you to be distant and um, cold in your heart towards him? Do you blame God for something related to relationships? Maybe a relationship that you have that is painful and broken and dysfunctional, or, or maybe a relationship that you want that you feel like will be the key to unlocking happiness. But the best of human loves disappoint. And so many will cause pain beyond belief in betrayal. But God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, offers us richest intimacy and true belonging and unconditional love if you'll just believe in Jesus and embrace him. What do you blame God for in your life? What do you hold him accountable for? Is, is it status that you have had and now you've lost or status that you long to gain in the workplace, among your friends, in your family, some sense of approval, some, some affirmation that you are great or at least you're, you're good and, and you've never had that. But approval and popularity and even fame, they're fleeting at best. Fortunes are lost in an instant and whatever makes you feel like you're flying high Soon enough, it will fail to satisfy. That's the nature of life in a fallen world. But God, those are gospel words. In the gospel, he promises to make you a co-heir with Christ. He promises that you will inherit all things in his kingdom that are most valuable, and they're yours if you'll simply believe in Jesus and embrace him. What do you hold God accountable for? Is it even a life? 
a life that has been lost or a life that hangs in the balance that you're pleading for even today. Cancer took Carl's mom far too soon. But a life saved and prolonged will die again. Will die in the end, I mean. And sometimes more painfully. And emotionally, emotionally in, in many ways. But God, in the gospel, raised his son from the dead. And the end game, the greatest equalizer that exists, is a resurrection power that is yours if you'll trust in the resurrected Jesus and embrace him by faith. You know where gospel grace shows up most powerfully in Carl's story? My opinion, as I read it through a few times and as I heard it again now for the second time this morning. It's when he said this, but God had some deeply important things to show us and as he often does, he used a series of very difficult circumstances in our lives to change us, to break us, to show us that he alone can meet our deepest needs. Carl stood up here this morning to tell you that grace was sufficient to sustain him not only in the midst of wave after wave of crushing pain and emotional turmoil. It was provided in the moment. It was sufficient. But not only that, Carl stood up here to testify that God's grace continues to be sufficient even today to enable him to look back without bitterness and resentment. Not without struggle. Don't, don't, don't get the, the wrong impression. There are no Cinderella stories in our grace stories. There is ongoing struggle. But grace, even today, to even catch a glimpse of the greater good that God is still at work producing in and through Carl's life, some of which is going to bear fruit in your lives this morning and in the weeks and months to come. I have no doubt. This is what Henry Nouwen wrote in his book, In the Name of Jesus. The world says, when you were young, you were dependent and could not go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will be able to make your own decisions, go your own way, and control your own destiny. But Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. No one chooses a path like that. But God in his wisdom often chooses it or allows it. And the life of faith is being willing to go where we would rather not go. Tim Keller shared this in his bestseller, Counterfeit Gods. It often takes an experience of crippling weakness for us to finally discover our idols. That is why so many of the most God-blessed people limp as they dance for joy. You know, I'm just getting to know Carl. I don't know if he can dance. I don't know if the brother's got any moves. I know he's got rhythm. I know he's got musicality. But whatever moves he's got, I'm confident of this. In his dance of faith, you and I could easily detect a limp. You and I could easily detect a limp And if and when he dances, a dance of faith, Carl's not dancing because everything's peachy. Everything has turned out exactly the way he dreamed it up, and life is perfect. No, 
if and when Carl dances the dance of faith, he's dancing because more than ever, he clings to and trusts in God's promises. And Carl knows that dawn comes after the night, that God will make right every wrong, that death will never have the final word because a resurrection power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work making him and all of God's people and God's creation new. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, thank you for this brother to strengthen our faith, to give us a boost to be able to say we trust you, Jesus, despite what's going on around us and in our lives. We believe you're coming again. We believe resurrection power is ours by faith, and we believe you will and even now are making all things new. We cry out with the church of all ages, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Until then, sustain us by your spirit within us to point us to the end game, which is resurrection glory. In Jesus' name we pray.